0: Father, we come to your word this morning uh, hungry for your truth. Uh, Lord, we long for you to speak to us. We long for you to work in each of our hearts. Lord, we long to know you more fully today. Uh, Lord, would you make us more and more your faithful, holy people? Would you transform each of us into the image of Jesus? We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit uh, to be mightily at work in us here today. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we please be seated. Um, And as you sit... Uh, Do uh, keep your bulletins open to those readings from Acts. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, you can flip there as well as we look at several different chapters uh, this morning from the book of Acts. Uh, There's one word in particular that I I do want to put before you this morning as we come to these uh, different passages. Uh, A word that, if it's not frequently part of your vocabulary when it comes to things like the church and Uh, discipleship and ministry that I hope after today will become much more part of the way that you think and speak about these things, and that is the word multiplication. Multiplication. Uh, I would love for all of us to leave here this morning fully understanding that our mission here as a gospel-centered, Bible-driven church is a mission of multiplication, Uh, Meaning that what we do here as a church and the way that we use our gifts and the way that we use our finances uh, doesn't terminate with us, Uh, but rather it multiplies itself out for the sake of producing more disciples and more churches. And even if the word multiplication maybe hasn't been a normal part of your vocabulary in the past, nonetheless, I think most of us already know the importance of this. Because if we think about it, we'll realize that actually the only reason we exist today as people who love Jesus is because multiplication happened. I mean, even just individually. I don't know all of your stories, uh, but the reason for me personally that I'm a Christian is because my grandmother who loved Jesus decided she was going to take the initiative and and tell me about Jesus, and by God's grace, I believed. That's multiplication. And the same is true with churches. Uh, This is how churches get started. People love Jesus, they start telling others about Jesus, who then believe and they start to to love Jesus themselves, and then a new community is formed out of all of that. That's multiplication. And so we should recognize that this church, uh, Christ Church New York City, wouldn't exist without that kind of multiplication. That's how important the word is. Uh, Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about the Christian church. He said, the Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost part of the earth. And then I want you to listen to to what he says here. He says, it was not intended to radiate from one central point only but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. In other words, part of what Spurgeon is saying there is that every Christian and and every church is to multiply in order to produce more Christians and more churches which themselves then go and do the same, to to multiply even more. So again, my hope and my prayer is that all of us here today will, will leave with multiplication much more a part of our ministry vocabulary. And this emphasis, of course, it doesn't just come from Spurgeon, it doesn't just come from me, it comes from Jesus himself. As we celebrate 20 years of gospel ministry here at Christ Church, as we've been doing throughout the month of January, we're doing a, a very short sermon series in the book of Acts in order to remind us of who we are and what we're to be about. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were looking at Acts chapter 1, in which Jesus uh, laid out his missionary plan for his people. Uh, remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's essentially the outline of the whole book of Acts Jesus promises, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's precisely what happens then uh, in the book of Acts. And so right there, that itself is a mission of multiplication. Jesus intended for his gospel message to multiply. To go out and out and out, ultimately going out into the whole world, and that's precisely what you see happening throughout the book of Acts. And so then last week we talked about our mission of proclamation, that Jesus sends us out to proclaim the message of the gospel. Uh, The gospel, the, the good news that through the death and resurrection of Jesus we can be forgiven of our sin and eternally reconciled to the God who created us. Uh, That's our mission of proclamation. We're to proclaim that message. And so with that understanding in place, what we want to do now this morning is to consider how it is that this good news message actually does indeed spread to the whole earth, beginning in Jerusalem, through the region of Judea, into Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. How does that kind of multiplication actually take place? Well, critical uh, to this mission of multiplication in the book of Acts is the church in Antioch. Those three readings that we had this morning from Acts 11, 13, and 14, they all draw our attention to the church in Antioch, which as we'll see this morning is a massively significant church uh, in the history of the multiplying spread of Christianity. And therefore, even just by studying how the church in Antioch Uh, came into existence, and then the ministry uh, that it had there, we can observe, I think, three facets of how it is that gospel multiplication happens. Uh, First, multiplication happens as Christians are scattered because of persecution. Second, multiplication happens as Christians are sent out as missionaries from local churches. And third, multiplication happens as healthy churches are established in new areas and in such a way that they too can carry out a mission of multiplication. Okay, so let's briefly think about those three facets of multiplication uh, as we see them in the church in Antioch, and then we'll try to draw some lessons uh, for ourselves here from, from what we learn in Antioch with the goal that we too will be part of this mission of multiplication. So first, when it comes to the church in Antioch, we can see that multiplication happens through Persecution. Because what often happens when persecution hits is that Christians are forced to scatter to new places where they can then begin to share the gospel with new people and establish new churches. And that's precisely how the church in Antioch first came into existence. That's what that reading from Acts chapter 11 uh, recounts for us. Uh, The first church that's formed is in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. As more and more Jewish people come to saving faith in Jesus, there in Jerusalem, opposition to the new church begins to form until ultimately a severe persecution is unleashed, beginning with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that leading in Acts chapter 8 to the scattering of the Christians into the regions of Judea and Samaria, and ultimately, here in chapter 11, leading all the way to places as far away as Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, uh, to Cyprus, which is off the coast there in the Mediterranean Sea, and to Antioch, which was the capital of the Roman province in Syria in the northern region of that province. And really, it's there in Syrian Antioch that the center of gravity among the early Christians shifted, moving from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of the things that's interesting and important there about the history told to us in chapter 11 is the role that the the church in Jerusalem played in helping to multiply the work in Antioch. Though it wasn't uh, initially an intentional missionary endeavor, once Christians began scattering to Antioch because of the persecution, and they they go there and they share the gospel, and they they share it not just with with other Jews, but they also begin to share it with Hellenists, uh, that is, with Greeks, with Gentiles... The church that's left in Jerusalem recognizes uh, that God's now at work there and that there are people who are being converted to the Christian faith in Antioch. And so they send Barnabas to go and disciple those new believers who are there in Antioch. And then as we're told here in chapter 11, when Barnabas gets there, uh, God uses him to continue to multiply that work such that the church is growing exponentially and so much so that Barnabas now needs help. And so he goes and he gets Saul, Paul, and he brings Paul back to to come and help him establish this church in Antioch. And so if you look at verse 26 there in chapter 11, uh, we're told that uh, when, when Barnabas had found Paul, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And again, how did all that happen? How did we end up with a church where previously there was no church? Well, it was first initiated through persecution. God allowed his people to be persecuted, thus forcing them to scatter from the comforts of their home church in Jerusalem. And the end result was that a new community of Christians was formed in Antioch, resulting in a church which itself would eventually become a massive multiplying factor in the spread of Christianity throughout the world. It's multiplication leading to multiplication, leading to multiplication, and on, and on, and on. Now, it's not until we come to chapter 13 that the history of the church of Antioch is picked up again. But if you look at the beginning there of chapter 13, you can see that that year Paul and Barnabas spent in Antioch discipling those believers was an immensely fruitful year. Because what's revealed in those opening verses of chapter 13 is a church community that's robust and healthy and that's clearly shaped by the truth of the gospel. Just look at the list of leaders in that church there in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's, that's, that's a very diverse group of people who are leading this church. Uh, Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's Jewish. Uh, Simeon is a Gentile who's black. Uh, his other name is Niger, which is Latin for black. Uh, Lucius is, uh, is Cyrenian, which is uh, in, North, in North Africa. Uh, Menean, remarkably, was someone who it seems was reared as part of King Herod's household. And then finally, there's the great Jewish rabbi, Paul himself, Okay, so that's quite a heterogeneous church staff who are leading up this church in Antioch. And so here you have a a group of of leaders who aren't driven by by race or by ethnicity or by background of any sort, but who instead are driven and unified by a shared love for Jesus Christ. In fact, as it's told here, this is a healthy worshiping community. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Friends, that right there is a church that adores Jesus. Because that's what biblical worship and biblical fasting is really all about. Uh, To worship something or to worship someone It's to ascribe value, it's to exalt, it's it's to make much of something or someone. And that's what this community is doing under the direction of their faithful leaders. They're worshiping the Lord Jesus. They're adoring Him. They're treasuring Him. They're making much of Jesus Christ. And the same is true with fasting. Fasting is another way that we go about showing the worth of Jesus. That's what biblical fasting is is really all about. Uh, Biblical fasting isn't about dieting. It's not about simply eliminating something from my life that's bad for me. Uh, Rather, fasting is me saying that I adore Jesus more than this thing that I'm giving up. And so the motto of biblical fasting should always be, Jesus is better than this. Whatever this is, whatever you're fasting from, whatever you're giving up, the motto is always, Jesus is is better than this thing that I'm giving up. Uh, In the case in Antioch, what they were saying by fasting is that Jesus is better than food. We don't need to eat. Uh, That hunger that we feel in our, our gut, it just reminds us that Jesus is better than eating. And in that way, you see, fasting actually reorients their worship. It it goes hand-in-hand with worship. It's helping them to focus even more on the supremacy and glory of Jesus as their preeminent treasure. Now, it's in the context of this adoration of Jesus that the main point of these verses is made. And that's the fact that God is now going to use this new church in Antioch to continue his mission of multiplication, of getting the gospel message out to the ends of the earth. And this time, it's not going to be multiplication through persecution, but rather multiplication through a very intentional sending of missionaries into the world. And that's the second point we want to observe about the church in Antioch. That multiplication happens as local churches intentionally and prayerfully send missionaries into the world. Because that's precisely what happens here. Again, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, so, Paul and Barnabas, who have been part of this church community for a full year, We're now being sent out from this church to go into regions of the world where there wasn't yet any gospel proclamation being made. And so I I just want to make sure that we don't miss the significance of this historically and missionally. And again, the significance of this can really be appreciated when we remember that the only reason we're here today as a church is because others, as they were led by the Holy Spirit, engaged in missionary efforts, Because understand that before this sending of Paul and Barnabas, there doesn't appear to have been any organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Uh, This is the the very first intentional, planned sending of missionaries into the world. Uh, Before this, Paul had had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece or Rome or Spain. None of that had happened yet. Uh, Before this, Paul hadn't written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. And so from here, resulting from this moment... The gospel would ultimately penetrate into the very heart of the Roman Empire. It would eventually spread throughout the world, including eventually arriving even in a place called New York City. And so this is hugely important for the worldwide spread of the gospel, which is why I say that the best way for us to understand this mission and the mission that we should have for ourselves as a church is that it's a mission of multiplication. It's seeking to multiply the gospel of God's grace throughout the world, which means it's about multiplying disciples, And it's about multiplying gospel workers or leaders. And it's about multiplying gospel-centered churches. And so ultimately, it's about multiplying worshipers of God, those who have been saved by His grace and who who now love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that's our mission as a church. Listen, we don't want to have just a a vague sense of wanting to do good in this world. Uh, Rather, we want to be engaged in this very specific gospel mission of multiplication. That's why we say you know, explicitly that our mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Right? It's, it's about multiplication. And when we say multiplication, that's, that's exactly what we mean. A basic dif- def- dictionary definition of multiplication is to increase, to grow, to duplicate, to reproduce. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch to do. Again, hugely significant. Uh, the first intentional sending of missionaries into the world with the message of the gospel. Now, if you want to go home this afternoon and uh, read through the rest of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, what you'll see is the itinerary uh, of the travels they took and all the different places that they went. Uh, by my count, they, they stop at more than 10 different locations over a two-year period. Okay? So this is, a, this is a missionary journey that lasts two years. Uh, First, they depart from Antioch, and they go to Seleucia and to the island of Cyprus. Uh, While there on the island, they travel from uh, one end of the island to the other, from Salamis to Paphos. Uh, After that, uh, if you have a Bible open, you want to look at verse 13 of chapter 13, they they then sail from Paphos to uh, what is modern-day southwestern Turkey, to Perga, which is in Pamphylia. Uh, Then eventually they end up in a a, a different Antioch than the the one they started in, an Antioch known as Antioch Pisidia, again, different from the Syrian Antioch from which they started. Uh, From there, they travel to Iconium, to Lystra, and then to Derbe. And that brings us to this section in chapter 14. So if you look at chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 19, you can get a flavor of what, what some of the journey was like for them and some of, the, some of the joys and some of the struggles that they faced all along the journey. Uh, as verse 19 begins, they're in the city of Lystra. Uh, but Jews came from Antioch. Again, this is a different Antioch from which they started. This is Antioch, Pisidia. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel, okay, so it's a mission of proclamation, when they had preached the gospel to that city, the city of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, that is Antioch, Pisidia. Okay, so, so now they're on their, their way back home to the Antioch, ultimately, from which they were sent. But as they go back home, they travel through some of the places that they initially had gone through on their way out there. And as they do so, they're doing the work of discipleship. Look at verse 22. What are they doing? They're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So you see what's taking place there, Uh, disciples are being made in all of these different cities and churches are being planted and established. And that's our third observation this morning, uh, that multiplication is taking place here through the establishment of healthy churches. You you, you want to see the the full picture of what's going on here. Right? They they go into a place and they preach the gospel. Uh, The Holy Spirit works through the the proclamation of the word. Sinners are converted. Uh, They put their faith in Jesus Christ. New communities, churches are established. Uh, Paul and and the team leave, but they then return. And when they do so, they encourage those believers. They strengthen them in the faith. They even warn them about the the tribulations and the difficulties they're going to face as believers in the world. And then, before Paul leaves them again, he works to make sure that they have solid, biblically qualified elders to lead the church. And he commits those leaders to the Lord. That's what we're told he does here. In every church, we're told... He appoints elders to lead each of those churches. It's a, it's a local plurality of elders for each church. And so, do you see then that, that when the Holy Spirit leads the church in Antioch to send out Paul and Barnabas, they do so, the Holy Spirit does so, so that ultimately more churches can be established. It's, it's a mission of multiplication. And listen, it really is significant that that new churches are formed. I think that's instructive for us. Uh, It's not just about doing the work of evangelism and discipleship, uh, but of also forming new churches under the leadership of elders whose ministry has been committed to God. This is why Jesus in the Great Commission, he tells us to go and to make disciples of all nations. And then he gives that instruction, baptizing them, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because to baptize someone is to welcome them into the church community. Uh, That's what we're going to be doing here this morning with our brother Julio, who's going to be baptized. Uh, It's not just that he's going to try and and be a disciple of Jesus all on his own, but but he's now part of a whole new community. A community that's committed to helping each other faithfully follow Jesus. Again, it's multiplication through the establishment of healthy churches, healthy communities. It's not just about making disciples, but about getting those disciples into churches, baptizing them into the community of God's people. Uh, One quick fun fact about this missionary work in Acts 14. Uh, One of the oldest Christian tombstones... Uh, was actually found in this region where Paul and Barnabas were doing this work uh, in Lystra. It wasn't from the 1st century. it's probably from the 2nd or the 3rd century. But it was found from right here in this very region of Lystra. Uh, the tombstone was damaged on the, the upper left side, uh, which cut off some of the words, but some of which you could read said, Buried the blessed and dearest father beloved by all, the blessed father philtatos beloved by God in memory. Uh, scholars note that uh, his title, Papas, probably corresponds to the Greek term Episkopos, which is a term for a leader in the Christian church. It's an elder, it's, a, it's an overseer in the church. In other words, it's a man like one of these very elders uh, who Paul and Barnabas established there in that region. And so, friends, when we talk about multiplication, we're talking about real people uh, coming to know the Lord, forming churches, and appointing leaders to love and to lead. real people who live life together and and who ultimately face death together. That's what's happening here. That's the significance of it. Antioch was first established as a healthy church which adored Jesus, and therefore as a result, that church sent out missionaries who established more disciples and more churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the ending of chapter 14 uh, because this is the missionary report uh, in which the church can celebrate and give thanks for what God has done. Uh, Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. This is the original Syrian Antioch from which they left, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples there in Antioch. So, as we observe the church in Antioch, uh, we see multiplication as a result of persecution, uh, multiplication through the intentional sending of people into the world, and multiplication through the establishment of healthy churches. Okay, so with with these observations before us, uh, what are some of the lessons, then, that we should take away from this? Let me highlight four that I think are, are most important for us today. Okay, first... Uh, We should learn from this that persecution may, in fact, be God's way of sending us out into the world. Now, perhaps you're feeling some pressure that it's no longer as easy to publicly be a Christian as it once was. Listen, if that's the case, don't let that discourage you. Uh, Don't simply lock yourself away and refuse to engage with the world, but realize that this may, in fact, be God's way of sending you into the world on mission. Now, this may be God's way of dislodging you from some of the the comfortable things of this life in order to create opportunities for you to share the gospel. So let persecution and marginalization encourage you to think more missionally about your life. Maybe God is opening up gospel opportunities for you that you don't even realize yet. Be ready for those. Second, we should learn from this that a vision and passion for mission is often formed within the context of genuine worship. And for the church in Antioch, worship and mission, they, they were intimately connected. It was, it was as they were worshiping. It was as they were adoring Jesus that the Holy Spirit gave them this vision and passion for mission. Brothers and sisters, adoring Jesus and going out and proclaiming the name of Jesus are intimately connected. And so if we want to do mission well, if we want to be a church that's engaged in multiplication, it will come as we adore Jesus above all else. It's out of worship and adoration that multiplication flows. Worship is always the driver for mission. As it's been famously said, you can't commend what you don't cherish. Which means we want to work at adoring Jesus with all that we are. All right, we, we want, we need to cultivate practices that help us to treasure Jesus Christ above all else. And so, for yourself, what does that look like for you? And what are the things, the practices, the disciplines that you have in your life which help to stir your affections for the Lord Jesus? Maybe you have to do some soul searching here. What really stirs your affections for Jesus? In this case, it was worship and, and fasting. Again, that was the context for the development of this very significant mission of multiplication that changed the world. A uh, Third, we should learn from this passage to think strategically and comprehensively when it comes to mission. Now, for example, we should do so when it comes to who is sent and how they're sent. Uh, if we were to ask the question, who sent Paul and Barnabas, the answer would seem to have two answers. Right, it's clear, chapter 13, verse 3, that the church sent them. Right? It was the church that fasted. It was the church that prayed. It was the church that laid hands on them as an act of commissioning them for this work. And then it was the church that sent them off. And so the church sent them. But it's also true, according to chapter 13, that the Holy Spirit sent them. After all, it's the Holy Spirit who tells the church to take this action. And then chapter 13, verse 4, explicitly says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so putting those two answers together, we could say that Paul and Barnabas were sent by the Holy Spirit through the church. And friends, in that, I think we have a clear biblical model here for the kind of practice that we too should undertake as a church. John Stott rightly notes that when we work according to this emphasis on both the sending of the church and the sending of the Holy Spirit, that that keeps us from two opposite extremes. Uh, One extreme is that of individualism, by which a Christian claims direct personal guidance by the Spirit without any reference to the church. In other words, it's it's people sort of Lone Ranger-like, operating apart from the church and doing their own thing without any real calling from the church. Uh, That's the the extreme uh, of individualism that we want to avoid. But then the opposite extreme is that of institutionalism in which all of the decision-making is done by the church without any reference to the Spirit. So says Stott, although we have no liberty to deny the validity of personal choice, it is safe and healthy only in relation to the Spirit and the church. There is no evidence that Barnabas and Saul volunteered for missionary service. They were sent by the Spirit through the church. Still today, it is the responsibility of every local church to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in order to discover whom he may be gifting and calling. So again, we want to think strategically and wisely about missions, uh, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and thus being wise about who we raise up and send out, ensuring that they're fully called and equipped to carry out the work that's needed. And so listen, maybe as you pray and Uh, You think about how the Lord might use you in this mission of multiplication. Uh, Don't try to be a lone ranger in this. Don't, Don't try to do it all on your own. But rely on your church here to come alongside you and affirm the calling that you think the Holy Spirit might be placing on you. Okay, so we want to think strategically when it comes to who is sent and how they're sent. But we also want to be strategic and comprehensive in what it is that we do in the work of missions. Again, what we see here with Paul and Barnabas is that it's a a complete comprehensive mission. Uh, They don't just go and preach the gospel and then hope everything works out okay. Uh, It's much more than that. Not only are they evangelizing people, but they're then following up new converts and making sure they're discipled and strengthened in the faith. And so the lesson is we need more than evangelism. Uh, We also need discipleship. But then we also need more than individual discipleship, we also need to make sure that those disciples are getting connected to churches, which may sometimes mean that we need to plant new churches. Okay, so again, it's, it, it's a fully comprehensive mission. It's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's establishing churches, it's appointing leaders, it's commissioning them, it's committing them to God, and then ultimately it's reporting back about the work that's being done. Friends, that's the kind of missionary work we should be supporting. And that's what we should be praying for, envisioning for in our own efforts as a church. And then fourth and finally, and most fundamentally, we should learn from this passage that a mission of multiplication is what God is about. Uh, Friends, this is God's work. Now, this is God's plan. That's why in chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas report back to the church, they declared all that God had done with them. And how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, because this is what God is about. He's about multiplying disciples and multiplying churches all over the world. It's his work. And I think this is hugely relevant for us as we celebrate 20 years of ministry this month. Because as we do so, we don't want to just look back at the last 20 years. We also want to look at the present and then consider the future. And so here's the challenge that the church in Antioch puts to us. And we're going to come back to this more next week, but let me just give you the challenge now. We'll come back to it more next week. The challenge that the church of Antioch puts to us is this. Are we going to be a church that's more concerned with maintaining what we have or with multiplying what we have? What's our mission? Is it maintenance or is it multiplication? We could look at this marker of 20 years and think, hey, let's just try to maintain that. Well, things are good right now. The the church is generally healthy. Uh, Let's not mess with that. Let's just try to maintain what we have. That's one option. And you know, I suspect the the church in Antioch had to wrestle with a similar question. For them, it was just a one-year anniversary, not 20 years. But when the Holy Spirit told them to send Paul and Barnabas out, they had to make a choice to be obedient or not. Uh, They had to intentionally choose multiplication over maintenance. And actually, I don't think we should minimize just how challenging it probably was for this church in Antioch to say that we're not just doing maintenance here. I mean, after all, things were going really well there. And not only that, but look at the two leaders they gave up. And it wasn't like they gave up leaders who didn't have very many gifts. They gave up Barnabas, who's the master encourager. I mean, everybody needs encouragement. You don't find anybody who's too encouraged in life. Everybody needs encouragement. We need Barnabases all over the place. Barnabas is the master encourager. And they gave up the apostle Paul. Right? Paul, the, he wrote half the New Testament. Imagine having Paul as your Sunday school teacher and then giving him up to do greater work. That's what they did. There's no doubt that this was hard for this church in Antioch. It takes courage to do this. It takes sacrifice to do this. But in this moment, you see, this... This Antioch moment. Uh, Instead of choosing to look inward, they chose to get on board with what God was doing. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas out. Not easy to do. But you know what? They were able to do it because they adored Jesus. That's the picture that's given to us here, that Jesus was everything to them. And so not only did they want to obey the Lord's command for them to do this, but they wanted others to adore Jesus as well. And so they did this hard thing of not just looking to their own interests, but of pressing outward to serve others with the gospel. Friends, I don't know what some of those Antioch moments are going to be that we're going to face this year. But no doubt we'll face some. And when we do, will we choose maintenance? Or will we choose multiplication? Well, listen, as you wrestle with that, uh, keep in mind that one of the clearest points in the book of Acts is that God is a searching and saving God. That He's a God on a mission to multiply worshipers. And therefore, He's still sending us to, to bring Christ's message of salvation to the ends of the earth so that new disciples gathering together in churches under godly leadership will be multiplied. And God isn't an aloof, and He's not passive, and He's not indecisive in this, and He's never in maintenance mode. He's never just coasting or drifting. God is sending, pursuing, searching, saving. And He calls us to join Him. So let's continue to win people to faith in Christ. Let's continue to baptize them. Let's be about planting churches that exalt Christ and growing churches with people who observe everything that Christ has commanded. Let's be what God is about. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for this wonderful example of the church in Antioch. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the work that you did through this church in Antioch, and the people who were saved, the lives that were transformed, communities that were changed. Uh, Lord, we, we want to be of use in that way. We want, to, we want to join you in this work that you are doing. Lord, would you be pleased to use us? Uh, would you, Lord, protect us from just protecting our own interests and maintaining what we have? Lord, would you give us a vision and a desire for multiplication. And would you do so as you fill us with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do this for your glory, we ask in his name. Amen.